0: Welcome to the Fielder Church Podcast. Our church inhales and exhales the Gospel every Sunday and is excited to bring our messages to you here. Thank you for joining us, and we hope God moves in your life as you listen into this feed. This morning, I want to teach you what I believe are two of the most important words, two of the most powerful words, In the entire English language. So if you're taking notes, I hope you are. Go ahead and get your spiral out. Get your pen ready. I'm going to teach them to you. You need to write these down. Make sure you know how to say them well. Here they are. I'm sorry. Those two words, I guarantee you, are some of the most powerful words if spoken with a sincere heart. Those two words have actually saved my marriage. I can't tell you how many times that my wife and I have been after it, just explosions and landmines and we're arguing with each other. And yes, my wife and I, just like you, we argue with each other. And there's been times where I've realized I was wrong, which is like 99% of the time I realize I'm wrong. And if I'll sincerely look at my wife and say, baby, you know what? You're right. I'm sorry. Immediately, if she, if she believes it's sincere. All the anger, all the, the frustration will just melt away. And then we're able to have a real conversation. And the whole temper and tone can change if I use those two words sincerely. Baby, I'm sorry. I can't tell you how many times this has saved my bacon with my own children. Times when I've, I've, just, I've just lost it. like I, My temper got the best of me. I said a harsh or sharp word to my child. And I can see them walk away just brokenhearted, head down, tail between their legs as they they just kinda scurry off, and I know I've broken their spirit, but when I finally come to my right mind and realize I'm not exemplifying the Heavenly Father to them, I can go and I can sit at the bedside of my child, and I can look at it, whatever child it is, and I can just say their name. Say, hey, Maddie, you know what? I lost my cool. I'm sorry. Can you forgive me? And the moment I say that, I can see their spirit return to them, and we can have a real conversation and healing and reconciliation. Not because I'm a good parent, but because I'm willing to say I'm sorry. Those two words are so incredibly strong. Those two words have mended broken relationships and family that have been broken for decades. Those two words, like I said with my own, have saved so many marriages. Those two words have actually stopped wars from breaking out when one person in power will apologize to the other person in power. Those words are powerful. We must learn them and say them often, I'm sorry. Those two words are words of what we call repentance. Words when we recognize that we've done wrong and we want to seek forgiveness, we repent of our wrongness and we seek forgiveness by saying, I'm sorry. Those words are so powerful. Now, maybe right now you're going, wait, wait a second, Jason, thank you for the lesson on apologies. I appreciate that. I'll, I'll try to use that. But I thought we were talking about the story of Joseph in Genesis and the end of it. I thought we were talking about his dreams and how they came to fulfillment. What does this have to do at all with the story of Joseph? Well, actually, nothing and everything. Because <laughs> what we're going to see today as we continue on in our sermon series through the end of the book of Genesis is that we're actually going to pull away from Joseph and we're going to focus in on a different story. And I want to go ahead and forewarn you, the story we're going to deal with today reads a lot more like a telenovela than it does a story in the Bible. If you don't know what that is, that's, that's a Spanish soap opera. You're going to hear something that just sounds absolutely crazy. It's found in Genesis 38. I want you to flip open, if you will, in your Bibles to Genesis 38. And we're going to mow through this. And I want you to know there's some crazy things in this particular chapter. Now, I, I will present this in ways as applicable and appropriate as I possibly can so that even my own children all the way down to four-year-old can watch it. But just know that when I read the passage, there's some risque things in there. And if you don't want your kids watching this, go put on a movie in another room, do something else, because I'm just going to read the Bible and say what it says. And it says some crazy things. But just to catch you up on what's going on. So last week, We learned the first part of this series of Joseph as we track with him all the way to the end of the book of Genesis. And we saw some atrocious things happen. His own brothers attack him. They throw him into a cistern, leaving him there to die just to pull him out, sell him to some Ishmaelites to be a slave on his way to Egypt. And then at the end of it, it just kind of truncates, stops, and you're just waiting to see what's gonna happen next. And then chapter 38 deviates entirely, leaves Joseph completely behind in Egypt. We don't know what's gonna happen. And enters this crazy story about judah and his daughter-in-law tamar but what you're going to discover through this crazy story is ultimately it's a story of repentance it's just going to take a while before you can see it so let's go ahead and start with this telenovela beginning in chapter 38 beginning in verse 1 i'm going to read it for you listen to what it says it says it happened at that time that judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain adulamite whose name was hera there judah saw the daughter of a certain canaanite whose name was shua He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chetzib when she bore him. Now, this right now, just stopping right there, is kind of setting up the parameters of our episode this week of the telenovela. And it, it starts by just showing us the sinful action of Judah, that Judah is going south. It all began by saying that Judah went down, he left his brothers, he abandoned his brothers and turned aside to a Canaanite city of Adullam. Now, it doesn't tell us why he turned aside. But there's a lot of speculation from historians, and especially from Jewish rabbis, about why Judah left. And most of them say the reason he left was because his own brothers had rejected him. It all stems from what we learned last week in chapter 38, excuse me, 37, what happened was Judah was the ringleader who convinced his brothers to sell Joseph into slavery on his way to Egypt. And whenever the brothers saw how this broke their father's heart, how, how Jacob was just overwhelmed by this and no one could console him, they blamed Judah for it. They said, it's your fault, Judah. You're the one who wrecked our family and wrecked our father. And so they rejected him and abandoned him. And so Judah decided, I've got no place here. And he gets up and he leaves his family and goes to Adullam, which is a, a city in Canaan. It's a reminder of his evil from the chapter before. But then he does something else, even more evil. It says that he marries a certain Canaanite's daughter. Now, that may not sound that evil, except if you go back earlier in the book of Genesis, God had told Abraham and his descendants very clearly that they're not supposed to intermarry with the other nations because they have foreign gods. They were supposed to keep true worship of Yahweh, keep the lineage pure. But Judah, at this point, he's abandoning everything. He's gone down to a Canaanite city, and he's married a Canaanite woman and had three sons with him. So you can see he's getting worse and worse and worse. But that, this is really just the beginning. It's going to get worse. Now we're going to see not only Judah's sin, but his three sons' sins as well. Let's keep on reading the story. Verse 6. It says, And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go and your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste a semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brother. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. I told you the story was going to get weird. I mean, it... It's already starting to go south, and there's a whole lot going on here, but there's some details that really uh, accentuate the the sin of Judah and of his children. Now, some of the details I have to explain, you probably don't know unless you understand ancient Near Eastern culture. The first one is this whole idea of performing the duty of a brother-in-law. You're going, what in the world is that? Well, that's something in the ancient world called Leveret marriage. It it was well-known in Hittite and Canaanite cultures. It was well-known among the Hebrew people as well. And it was a basic idea that when someone died, a brother, the eldest brother died, that one of his younger brothers was supposed to marry the widow and produce offspring that would be in that child's name. In fact, if you were to go over to the book of Deuteronomy, and you go over to chapter 25, what you see is a really simple explanation that comes later in the law of Moses that I think gives us really clear details of of how this worked out. So Deuteronomy chapter 5, chapter 25, verses 5 and 6 say this. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So that that was the way it worked. So, The younger brother is supposed to marry the widow, supposed to produce offspring. the first offspring didn't belong to him. It belonged to his deceased brother so that the lineage would carry on so his name would not be blotted out. So that was what he was talking about. He's saying, Onan, your older brother Ur is dead, so perform the duty of a brother-in-law. And this is where Onan sins. You you, you look at it and he says God smote Onan, killed him because of the sin. You're going, what did he do? Well, Onan decided not to produce an offspring. To which you're going, well, why are you smiting him for that? Well, that actually had major implications. It was incredible selfishness that drove Onan to forsake all normal cultural practices and not produce an offspring. You just got to understand how this system worked in the Old Testament times. Okay, so back then, and you probably learned this when we went to the First Timothy series, if you were with us. Back then, the eldest son had a privileged position. He had two things going for him. He had what was called the role of primogeniture, which meant he was the designated leader of the future of the family. And he also had the second thing, the birthright, which was basically at least a double inheritance from his father. So he was going to get more wealth, and he was going to get a position of leadership. So everybody wanted to be the oldest sibling. Well, Ur, the oldest brother, dies, which means that the role of primogeniture and the birthright should pass on to Onin. Except if Onin produces an offspring through Tamar for his deceased brother Ur, then this offspring is now going to be the new heir and he's going to be the one to receive the role of primogeniture in honor of his deceased father Ur and he's going to get the double portion of the inheritance in honor of Ur. And Onan's going to miss out on everything. And Onan, way too selfish to miss out on the role of leadership and on the birthright, says, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not doing that. So he refuses to fulfill that function. That's why God smites him because he's dishonoring his deceased brother because he's selfish. Well, it seems like all is lost, except there's one more child. Poor Tamar is being left alone. But now here comes Shelah. And Shelah has the opportunity to prov- provide this role and produce offspring for Ur and for Tamar. But now it's not Shelah that stops it. It's Judah that stops it. It says Judah says, no, my son's not old enough yet. And so he says, go remain as a widow in your father's home. And we'll wait for Shelah to grow up. Now, you don't know this yet. But what you're going to discover is that's incredibly evil because he has no intention of giving Shelah to Tamar. You'll see it in the next portion of the scripture that he wasn't planning on doing this at all because he was scared to death that Shelah, his last son, would die as well. For whatever reason, Judah could not conceive of the fact that his son's sins were the problem. He thought Tamar was the problem. She must have been hexed or something. All her son, his sons are dying because they're connected with her. And if he gives Shelah to her, well, Shelah's going to die as well. So he says, no, go to your father's house. Stay away from my son Shelah. But he says something absolutely cruel. He says, remain a widow in your father's house. Now, again, you may not know why that sounds cruel, but let me tell you why it's cruel. Because in that day and age, if she's a widow, she's exceptionally vulnerable. Back then, women did not have any capacity to earn money for themselves, to provide for themselves, to protect themselves. They needed men in their life to do that. And so it would be early on their father who would protect them, or maybe older siblings, brothers who would protect them. But then once she got married, it was her husband and her husband's family that should take on the role of protecting and providing for her. But Judah says, nope, I'm not going to do that. Go back to your father's house. Let him provide for you. Wait for my son Shelah. But because he's not going to give his son Shelah over to Tamar, whenever Tamar's father dies, she is going to be a vulnerable widow with no means to care for herself. She's going to be stuck either going to enslavement or prostitution. She will not be able to provide for herself any other way. So Judah is condemning tamar his daughter-in-law to a horrific life and he could even care less about it you begin to see the sin of judah brewing more and more he's getting he's going from bad to worse but that's not the lowest point this next part of the passage you're going to get to see an even lower point when judah's sin just continues to spread throughout him like cancer keep on reading and we'll get to the next part of this episode And let me tell you this is a crazy part of the telenovela verse 12 in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to, to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adullamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, He thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, Well, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, Well, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the colt prostitute who was at Enim at the roadside? And they said, no colt prostitute's been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no colt prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, well, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see how I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. Stop there. <laughs> I told you this was a telenovela. This story is crazy. And it just keeps getting crazier. And, and as you read it, I know your mind is going, holy cow, is this stuff actually in the Bible? <laughs> Why well, haven't I read this before? And it's really hard to make sense of it because it's such a crazy story. But you have to know what's going on to understand the, the nature of Judas' sin because you can wrongly attribute sin to the wrong people and misunderstand what the sin actually is. So the first thing you think is, well, the sin, man, that Tamar, She's dressing up like a prostitute to trick her own father-in-law to be with her. And man, she is so messed up. But actually, i going to help you understand, she's not doing nearly as bad as Judah's doing. Now, then you look at Judah going, what in the world is Judah doing with a prostitute? I thought he was Abraham's grandson. Well, <laughs> What's going on with his life? Well, yes, that's pretty jacked up. But what's really bad isn't just the immoral nature of that particular physical act. It was the spiritual nature of that act. You see, later on it said he thought she was a cult prostitute. Again, ancient Near Eastern world understanding is very important. So they lived in the land of Canaan. The Canaanite religion believed a whole lot in fertility that was accomplished through the gods. And if you were going to please the gods, that would ensure fertility. And there were certain gods, like the god of Baal and others, that you had to try to appease. And one of the ways they believed you could appease the god of Baal, the god of fertility, was to go to a shrine, a place where there would be cult prostitutes. And through some kind of sexual union with a cult prostitute, they believed that pleased the gods and that would ensure fertility. But it was only meaningful at certain seasons of the year, sometimes during the birth of the flock, other times during the shearing of the flock, which is why that little detail that it was the time of sheep shearers is important. This was, to believe, was believed to be a fortuitous time to go ensure the fertility of the flock. So what you see from this is that Judas sin isn't just immorality, it, it's spiritual brokenness. He's falling prey to the false views of the Canaanites, believing that he can ensure the fertility of his flock by being with a cult prostitute. And so he goes aside, has no clue that this woman is his daughter-in-law because she's got a veil on, which is the normal attire of a cult prostitute. And he goes to her and says, I want to be with you. And she says, well, what payment are you going to give? A young goat? And, and she goes, well, I need a pledge. And he goes, well, what pledge? And she says, three things. I want your signet, your cord, and your staff, to which those are utterly meaningless to you. You have no clue what those three things are. Those three things are the the sources of identification of a person. So the signet usually was a stone that was engraved that had your seal. So what you would do is if you had any kind of legal document, they would put some wax on it and you would put that signet and it would stamp it and that would be your signed document. It was a legally binding seal. Now that signet usually you wore around your neck with a cord. That's the cord part it's talking about. And then most men had a staff, a walking stick, but on the top of that staff, it would have some type of inscription or some type of symbol that showed it belonged to that person. So these three things were the ways that you symbolize who somebody is, the sources of identification. Think about like a driver's license or a passport. That's what these things, these things were. So she asked for these identification things. Now, Judah thought he was only giving it to her for a little bit, then he was going to send a goat and get them back. But he... He goes, gives the pledge, and he's with her. She conceives, and they all leave. And then Judah says, all right, I'm going to go fulfill my pledge, get my things back. He sends the young goat, and his friend Hira goes, can't find her anywhere, comes back saying, listen, man, I looked everywhere. No one even knows what you're talking about. And then Judah says, well, forget it, man. Don't even go back. We'll become a laughingstock if we go back. Why? Because Judah was a Hebrew. He was not supposed to be doing this. This would be like a Baptist preacher leaving their driver's license at a casino. You just don't go back to get it. Not that I've done that, by the way. That's not what I'm saying. But you just don't go back to get your driver's license. You leave it because you become a laughing stock. Well, that's what's going on right here. Judah's saying, I'm not going back. I don't want to be a laughing stock, so just leave it. It's better for me just to get new ones than to try to find them. And here now, you look at the story going, man, this story is crazy. These people are messed up. But what we don't realize is that this is all unfolding in a way that only God could orchestrate. Because as that moves on, you're about to see how all these pieces fall together. Verse 24, listen to what it says. Says about three months later, Judah was told, "Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality." And Judah said, "Get this! Bring her out and let her be burned." Holy cajolies. You talk about hypocrisy from Judah. Here's a dude who attacked his own brother, threw him into a cistern. Then he led his other brothers to to lift him out so he could sell his own brother into slavery to Egypt. Here's a guy who abandoned his family and his faith. He's hanging out in Canaan. He is sleeping with prostitutes. He is abandoning his daughter-in-law. He's doing all this evil. And he has the audacity to look at Tamar and go, let her be burned at the stake because she's being immoral. You want to talk about some messed up faith in religion. That dude Judah was steeped in sin. You can see sin spreading all over Judah. But here's what's so interesting. This didn't start with Judah. Sin had been spreading in the lineage of Jacob's children, attacking them one by one by one, disqualifying all the sons of Jacob from being the, the lineage of the people of God. It started with the oldest. You have Reuben. Reuben was the firstborn of the sons of Jacob. Judah was the fourthborn. The first one was was Reuben. And Reuben was supposed to be the the role of primogeniture. He was supposed to receive the birthright. He was supposed to be the one that led the family of God. But if you were to go back to what I mentioned last week in chapter 35, Reuben blew it all because he defiled his father. He slept with his father's concubine. He disgraced his dad. And he wrecked that role of primogeniture. He disqualified himself from being the ruler the one through which the lineage would go. Well, then you go to the next brother, who's Simeon, and the next brother after that, who's Levi. And if you know the stories from chapter 34, then you know those two guys disqualified themselves too. Those two guys went on a murder spree, killed all the men of Shechem who were utterly innocent, did it in cold blood. I mentioned this last week. These people at Shechem, man, they hadn't done much of anything, and now they're killed by Simeon and Levi. And in cold blood, they do all this murder, and they thus disqualify themselves as well from the role of pre and now you have Judah the fourth and he's following the same pattern of sin, sleeping around, defiling his faith, mistreating those he's supposed to be protecting and he's proving to be just as immoral, just as unworthy of taking on the role of leadership in the spiritual family. That is until, until verses 25 and 26. And in those two verses, everything changes. These are the key verses of the whole passage. I wanna read them for you. It says this, in verse 25. As she was being brought out, talking about Tamar, to be burned, by the way, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who's, who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my own son Shelah, and he did not know her again. I'll stop right there. This moment came finally when Judah was forced to confront his sins. When, when Tamar brought out these sources of identification, brought out his driver's license and said, here it is, it's by this man right here. Judah at that moment knew that he was demanding justice to be done against his daughter-in-law Tamar, but the moment he demanded that justice, that justice would be returned right on him. If she should be burned at the stake, so should he. And in an instant, he knew His sin was graver. His sin was worse. And you know what he does? He repents. He looks at his own sin. He doesn't blame anybody. He didn't go "Well, It's Tamar's fault. She tricked me. Well, it's my family's fault. They kicked me out. He didn't blame anybody else. All he says is, she was more righteous than I was. He says basically, Tamar, I'm sorry. I messed up. This is on me. He repents. And it's at this moment that the life in the lineage of Judah changes from his older three brothers. It's in this moment of repentance that utterly transcends what's going to come from him, from what was taking place with his older three brothers. So if you think back to the older three, they too have messed up. All of them were steeped in sin, but the older three have zero repentance. I mean, you look back at Simeon and Levi, the, the, the second and third brothers, the ones right above Judah. And they are completely unrepentant for their sin. Their father actually calls them out. If you were to go back to chapter 34, at the very end, he says to Simeon and Levi, what have you done murdering all these people? You've made me repulsive to the people of the land. And their answer was, well, I'm sorry, dad, but they shouldn't have done that to our sister. I'm gonna do a little timeout here. I wanna wanna tell you something really important. If you ever apologize and you say, I'm sorry, but you've wrecked your apology. I'm sorry, but they had it coming. I'm sorry, but you just don't understand. I had to do it. I'm sorry, but if you ever add that little conjunction at the end of that statement, you have wrecked it and proven you're not really sorry. You're blaming it on everybody else. By the way, we can do the exact same thing to God. We can look up to God and say, God, I'm sorry, but but you don't understand, God. I had to do it. They forced me to, I'm sorry, God, but there was just no other way around it. I'm sorry, God, but I just couldn't. If you ever say, I'm sorry, but you've wrecked it. That's not a true source of repentance your heart's not right in it that's what Simeon and Levi had done they said I'm sorry dad but they deserved it they were unrepentant disqualified themselves well you have Reuben with the same problem Reuben was entirely unrepentant as well I, I, th- I know there's some of you your bible nerds out there you go wait, wait wait Jason I was here last week I heard chapter 37 and Reuben was repentant because I saw him trying to save his little brother Joseph to which I would reply yeah it might look that way But Reuben's motives were as impure as can be. The only reason why Reuben wanted to save his little brother Joseph was so he could get back into his father's good graces. And the reason I know it is because whenever the plan didn't work, he still didn't tell his father Jacob the truth. Reuben knew that Joseph was still alive, that he'd been sent as a slave to Egypt. And he sees his father Jacob dying in misery, thinking his son is dead. And Reuben, the eldest, does nothing to... to, Exemplify the truth to let his father know, no Joseph is still alive. You know what that tells me? It tells me Reuben was sorry for the consequences, but not for his actions. That's not true repentance. Which, by the way, you've been around people like that too. Yeah, I, I, some of you have been that. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, but you're not really sorry because nothing really changes in your life. You're just sorry you got caught. You're just sorry you're suffering the consequences. Again, we do this to God. We say, God, I'm sorry, now can you heal my marriage? God, I'm sorry, now can you give me a job again? God, I'm sorry. We we feel like we're dealing with consequences of our sin and we say, I'm sorry, but then we say, now can you do this good for me? What it shows is we're not ready to suffer the consequences of our mistakes. We're not genuinely repentant. We're doing it for ourselves, we're selfish. Reuben was that way and therefore he was disqualified because he was unrepentant. But Judah, his repentance was entirely different. Judah, when he repented, He didn't just say, I'm sorry. He said, I'm sorry and I'm willing to receive the consequences of that. That last little statement is so important. It says, he said, she is more righteous than I since I did not give her my son Shelah. And then it says, and he did not know her again. In other words, he was not intimate again with Tamar. Now, back in that time, it was very feasible for him to go ahead and marry Tamar and continue on a relationship that was actually pretty normative back then. Once he'd been with somebody, and intimate with somebody, you maintain a marriage. But he knew that it was inappropriate because of what he had done, how he had sinned against Tamar. And there is no record that Judah was ever married again, that he was ever intimate with anybody again. He's got no more list of descendants that come after him. In other words, more than likely, this was his last time that he was intimate with anybody. He forsook that for the rest of his life, likely celibate for the rest of his life, as the consequences of his sin. And he was willing to accept them because he knew he had made a mistake. That's genuine repentance. When you're willing to accept the consequences that come with your sin. And another marker of genuine repentance is you are genuinely different in the future. And you see this in Judah. From this moment of repentance, he is never the same person again. In fact, when we get to Genesis 44, what you're going to see is Judah stand up and do something absolutely phenomenal. So Benjamin has now gone. Joseph is second in command and they're trying to get grain from him. And Joseph demands for Benjamin to stay over there. And Judah knows that's going to kill their father Jacob if Benjamin is gone. And so what you'll discover is Judah has such an incredible heart that he stands up and says to who he believes the second command in Egypt, and he says, don't take my brother Benjamin. Take me instead. Let me be incarcerated in his place. Let me die in his place. And you see such a Christ-likeness from Judah he is utterly transformed. Here is this guy who used to be a brother-enslaving, a, a daughter-in-law mistreating, a, a, a false God-worshipping miscreant, and now here he is willing to give up his life for his little brother. Utterly transformed. Why? Because that's the power of repentance. Repentance, genuine, a heartfelt repentance can transform us. I mean, when we come to the place where We're willing to stop blaming everyone else for our problems. Stop saying, what's well, their fault and their fault and their fault. And really look at ourselves in the mirror and say, no, this is mine. I own this. These are my misdeeds and my misconduct. When we own it, our hearts can change and therefore our lives can change. But here's what's so beautiful about it. It's not just our lives that change. We actually have the power to change the, the generations after us. What you're going to discover in this story is that not only does Judah change, But the very story of the people God changes with him. And you see it indicated by this really weird ending to this story. It almost seems like an addendum that doesn't fit at all in verses 27 to 30. But it's really very significant in the story of God's people. Let's finish up the passage. Here's what it says, verse 27. It says, When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, And she said, what a breach you've made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah. Okay, you're looking at that going, that makes no sense whatsoever. What's that even doing in the Bible? Well, it actually is exceptionally significant because what it's trying to do is help us see how Judah's future and his genealogy was, was transformed by this moment. It's aligning Judah, the line of Judah, with the holy people of God, the holy lineage. The way you see it is because there's another very prominent story of twins a little bit earlier in the same book of Genesis. The story about Judah's father, Jacob. Jacob had a twin brother named Esau, and their story is very similar as well. Jacob was the younger one, but by force, he takes the role of primogeniture, and he takes the birthright from his older brother. And now you have two generations later, and you have another set of twins and you have the first one who sticks out his hand, who should be the older brother. The scarlet thread is on his hand. But then the younger brother forces his way out and he bursts forth and he takes the role of primogeniture and the birthright. And that boy's name is Perez. In fact, the name Perez means bursting forth. It's talking about taking something by force. And it's showing just like Jacob and Esau, so with Perez and Shara and Zerah, that the continuation of the story is now aligned. Judah is aligned with Abraham Isaac and Jacob. Now, this is exceptionally significant because Jacob had 12 sons. And you would expect the holy lineage to go through Reuben or, or maybe now in this story through Joseph, but it doesn't. It goes through Judah. In fact, what you discover as you jump over to Genesis 49, whenever Jacob is blessing his children, the one he says will be the ones everyone else bows down to isn't Joseph. It's Judah. And when he says the line of the kings will come, It wasn't through Reuben or Simeon or Levi or anybody else. It was through Judah. Then you fast forward and you get to King David. And what was his line? The line of Judah. Then you get all the way to the Messiah. And what's his line? The line of Judah through King David. In fact, if you go over to the New Testament and you read the genealogies in the book of Matthew and the book of Luke, when you walk through it, what you're going to see is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and Perez. That's the lineage of the Messiah. This little addendum here is trying to show us that Judah, simply by his power of repentance, has now aligned himself to be the holy lineage that the Messiah would come through. That's why that little bit of the story is in there. I know I know. your your head is spinning. You're going, Jason, I can't keep up with you, man. What are you trying to say with all this? All right, let me go ahead and give you the, the Bible for dummies version. Here's what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say that this screwball, Judah, who had wrecked his life simply by the act of repentance is able to become the forefather of the son of God. That's the power of repentance. Doesn't just transform him, transforms every generation after him, transforms the very people of God. That's the power of repentance. To which you're saying, man, I, I see that. Praise God, but what does that matter for me? Well, let me tell you, that, that power wasn't just for Judah, wasn't just for the stories and the characters of the Bible. That power is available for you and for me. When you and I enter into that place of genuine repentance, you and I discover the greatest power God has given us to transform our lives. Listen, I know there's some of you watching this right now, and you are so discouraged. You think your life is just wrecked it. You've wrecked it, you've sinned in the past, something's been done to you, you think you'll never amount to anything, or you're living in sin right now, you can't seem to get victory, and you feel like nothing's ever going to change, you feel so discouraged, so worthless. And you have no clue that God has given you the same power that when you come before Almighty God with repentance, willing to say, God, I'm sorry for the things I've done heal me, that that power can transform your life. And not just you, your children, your children's children's children, every generation after you. That's the power of repentance. The question is, are you willing to believe in it? I know this is a crazy story. I know there's all these different moving parts to it of this telenovela that you're trying to keep up with. But let me tell you that it all comes down to this. He wants you, God wants you to know that when you humble yourself enough to repent, everything can change. God can heal you when you repent. God can transform your future when you repent. God can transform everything that comes after when you repent. All you got to do is humble yourself up enough before God to say, God, I'm sorry. I want you to take over, transform me. Do you need to do that today? Listen, I, I, I want you to know, this act of repentance, of placing your faith in Christ, it's not difficult to do, but it is the hardest thing you will ever do because it requires you to be fully broken. It requires you to come face to face with the depravity of your soul, the magnitude of your sin. You can't brush it off to anybody else anymore. You gotta be willing to own it you got to be willing to carry that burden and know just how screwed up you really are. you got to be willing to say, oh, God, I've messed this life up. Forgive me. I'm so sorry for what I've done. I'm sorry for how I've offended you, God, and I've broken my relationship with other people around me. God, heal me. But when you come to that place of brokenness, genuine brokenness, not I'm sorry, God, but, or I'm sorry, God, now can you fix my life? No, God, I'm sorry. That's it. I'm sorry, God. Heal me, fix me, God. That's when everything can begin to change. Listen, the, the word of God, the most important part of the word of God is this gospel message that says, Jesus Christ died on a cross. He bled and died so that you and I could be certain that when we went to the Father, we would be accepted because of his sacrifice on the cross. We don't have to have any shame, any guilt, any fear when we go before the Father because of what Christ has done for us. All that matters is that you and I are willing to say, God, I'm broken. God, I'm sick spiritually. Heal me. Jesus told us he didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick. He didn't come for the religious. He came for the broken. So if we'll choose to be broken and spiritually sick and admit that, then God can heal us. Then Christ can transform us. But it starts with that humility, that repentance. Are you ready to say, God, I'm sorry? Listen, if you are, it begins by drawing a line in the sand. And saying, I'm ready to trust in Christ. I need Jesus to heal me. My heart's broken. I want a fresh start. I want to be made new. And that's where we want to partner with you. The scriptures are very clear about how you take that step of faith. How you enact repentance. It's through baptism. Baptism is a picture of your death and burial with Christ Jesus as you go into the water. And your resurrection into a brand new self when you come out of the water. It's the old Judah going in dead and buried in a brand new Judah who lives differently coming out. That's the picture of utter repentance. God, kill the old me, rebirth a brand new me who is under your rule, God. I believe there are some of you watching this and you need to take that step of faith. You need to draw that line in the sand, drive that stake into the ground and say, forevermore, I'm for Christ and I'm with Christ. I repent, God, forgive me, take over my life. I'm ready to express it in baptism. If that's you, we have a baptism celebration in just two weeks. And there are so many more people signing up for it. But I believe there are so many more who are just sitting back, sitting on your hands, waiting for I don't know what. And now's the time to say, I'm not going to wait any longer. I'm going to take a step forward. So we want to help you take that step. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want to encourage you to go visit a quick website where you can get a form. It's just, you can go to filler.org slash next step. And you're going to see this little form that you see it on the screen right now. This form, it just has a place where you choose your language. So most of you watching this will choose English. And then it's gonna come up with a little list where you can go through and pick what decision you're making today. For many of you, it may be to follow Christ. It may be that you're ready to be baptized. You just click on that. It may be you wanna talk to a pastor, maybe multiple things. And then you just fill out three quick things after that. You just put your name, your email, and your phone number, and that's it, you're done. If you wanna get that same form with your phone, you can just text the word "next step" to 94253, and you'll get that same form. That's all there is to it. I don't want you to be burdened with the unknown of what's coming. This form is all there is. You let us know, and a pastor will reach out to you today to help you take this incredibly important step of faith where your life can be transformed. I just want to encourage you take the step. Don't wait. You've suffered long enough. Let today be your day of redemption and transformation. Let today be the hinge point of your life, like it was for Judah in this Bible story. Let me also say I know there are many of you watching this, you've already taken that step of faith. You're believers in Jesus, you've been baptized. But you need to know that it doesn't stop there with just, I've repented one time in my past and now I'm good. <laughs> if you are a follower of Jesus, repentance is going to be a daily occurrence because sin is going to be a daily occurrence. And I believe you and I are going to have a special gift in a moment when we take the Lord's Supper where we're going to be able to exercise repentance as believers. So here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. I'm going to encourage you in a moment to go get the Lord's Supper supplies ready because we're going to take the Lord's Supper. I'm going to lead us in the taking the Lord's Supper. But before we do that, I want you to to get into a posture where you're willing to say, oh God, I'm sorry for my sins right now. Would you forgive me? I I got my own I got to deal with. I believe many of you watching have got sins you got to deal with. We're going to sing a song that says that very thing. God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for just going through the motions, just singing songs for, for not really honoring you, not knowing that you're the greatest reward. God, I'm sorry for all this other stuff. And maybe there's some sins you need to confess before the Lord privately. Maybe in your own living room, you need to get down on your knees and say, oh God, I'm sorry. And you need to name whatever that thing is. I'm sorry for doing this. I'm sorry for watching this when I shouldn't have. I'm sorry for saying this harsh word. I'm sorry, whatever it may be. Oh God, forgive me. And here's what you could know. In a moment when we take the Lord's Supper, you're gonna have the reminder of why you can go before before the Father every single time. Because the body and the blood of Christ Jesus The Father will always say, oh, my child, I've just been waiting for you to come. Come here to my arms. You're forgiven. There are many of you who need to find forgiveness today. So as we sing this song, prepare your heart. And then when the song is over, I'll come and I'll lead us in the taking of the Lord's Supper. Get yourself ready.